In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the last days of the kingdom of Judah, King Zedekiah sat on the throne as a puppet tributary ruler. He had been installed by none other than Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, after he had deposed and taken captive Zedekiah's brother and predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar had given him a crown, a regnal name, and a stern warning not to double-cross the Babylonians like his brother. But Zedekiah was a foolish king who had not learned from the devastation of his family. He tried vainly to back-channel with the Egyptians against Nebuchadnezzar, who upon discovering the plot destroyed Egypt and then Jerusalem, taking Zedekiah away and then slaughtering his sons in front of him. Our lesson for the epistle is Jeremiah's prophetic message to the people living in that awful season. As the final wicked king of Judah led the kingdom into its exile, Jeremiah spoke of a king yet to come, a king in the line of David, a king who would save and sustain Judah with peace and justice, unlike all her prior kings, a king who would be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah's prophecy stood as a direct indictment of Zedekiah and the manner of kingship that culminated with him. Zedekiah, the name given to him by the pagan king, meant the Lord is my righteousness, and he acted like it. Rather than seeing righteousness as an extension of covenant faithfulness, rather than remembering that the Lord is the righteousness of all those who faithfully walk in his ways, Zedekiah used his name as a personal possession, a totem, to cover up his own wickedness. His continual rebellion against God made his name a tragic and an ironic misnomer, in no way befitting the person who bore it. This was Judah's great problem in a nutshell. They were the covenant people living in the chosen city. And this privilege became for them a source of blindness to the fact that they had long since departed from the righteousness and true justice that God required. And for this reason, God pronounced doom on Judah. As he had said through Jeremiah earlier, Because you have not heard my words, behold, this whole land shall be a devastation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. This word was Zedekiah's undoing. The culmination of his hubris was in trying to undo this word from God, which with every attempt only ushered in further that destruction. He became, in the end, a grim final note to a long and sad history of unfaithful kings and kingdoms. In our lesson, however, Jeremiah foretells that the coming king will be nothing like Zedekiah or the kingdom that he symbolized and represented. By contrast, that coming king would truly bear the name, the Lord, our righteousness. He would be the likeness of God and the Lord himself, standing among his people doing only what God can do. His rule would usher in blessing 
and plenty and peace. His righteousness would be the fruit of his perpetual will to do the will of God. And he would extend that righteousness to all people. But to his hearers, Jeremiah's prophecy would have provoked the question of how this could possibly be. The kingly line had apparently vanished, and its last trace in Jerusalem had just been carted off. Bearing with this burden of perplexity, the people entered somberly into exile and into a season between kings. We cannot underestimate the difficulty of that season. With such a marred image of kingship as Zedekiah blurring their vision, looking for the king of prophecy was constantly fraught. This was especially poignant after the return from the Babylonian exile, when those who managed to come back to Jerusalem began to look for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy and the restoration of the kingdom. Centuries would pass, and there would be many pretenders. Faithfulness in the time between kings meant patiently awaiting the one to come and not being distracted by the false kings. Then, in the same wilderness through which the people had traveled sadly into exile, and then as a chastised people back home, Jesus took bread, offered thanks, broke it, and gave it to his apostles to distribute to the people as a feast on the road to Jerusalem. It is telling that St. John situates the feeding miracle in chapter 6 of his gospel between the Feast of Pentecost at Jerusalem in chapter 5 and the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem in chapter 7. There in chapter 6, he feeds the multitudes in a kind of microcosm of that whole exile journey that Judah had previously endured. It helps us to remember that Pentecost, before it was a Christian feast, observed a thanksgiving offering of the early wheat harvest to God. It is a precursor to the offering of bread that the lad makes to the Lord in the wilderness. Tabernacles recalled, of course, that season of the wilderness wandering with the tabernacle before entering the promised land, during which the people were fed on the bread of heaven, manna to sustain them. St. John closes the account of the feeding miracle by noting that there were 12 baskets left over, which links the sign and the feeding to the showbread of that ancient temple that was no more to the twelve loaves of bread set before the presence of the Lord to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. That same showbread became the sustenance provided by the priest to King David in 1 Samuel 21 so that he could feed all of his followers and and devoted servants in the wilderness exile fleeing from King Saul. Together, these signs communicate in a quiet but intricate way how our Lord is that fulfillment of prophecy, how that our Lord is the branch of David's kingly line, and that he is also the Lord himself, and also the priest who provided for the king. It situates our Lord at the heart of an invisible tabernacle and temple in the wilderness, that throwing back to the wilderness of Sinai, and 
going out to the exile journey from captivity, the king who provides for his people. We see the apostles in this miracle as the priestly ministers of a new kind of temple in the wilderness, and the people seated by households on the grassy place as they had in the ancient days of Israel, finally returned to an ordered life with God in their midst. There in the wilderness, in John 6, life was set at right again. It was a touch of home and a sign of what was to come. Like them, we find ourselves, as it were, in that space created by Pentecost and tabernacles, in the spirit with Christ, and in the wilderness sojourn heading to the promised land. Like them, we are awaiting the king, who is also that king who seems to be among us. But unlike them, we have seen what the king looks like. We do not have to wonder. He has shown himself to us. He is the king who comes near. He is the king who cares for us. He is the king who is the Lord himself and who gives us bread to eat and a place to rest even when we're not yet fully home. We are in a time that emerges from the true king, a time that is known in the presence of that true king, and a time that will culminate in that true king. King Jesus is with us, and our life in this age is defined by continuing with him as he leads us to the Jerusalem that even now he is making. Our gathering this morning for the Eucharist is that very kingdom present with us even now. We are about to receive a sign of the Lord's own making, the bread of heaven itself, and it will be given to us by Christ through his ministers and reveal, as he does so, his presence among us and the manner of his kingship. Today we receive again the sign that he is with us always to the end of the age, that he never forsakes us, that he always keeps his word, and that he is coming very soon. Faithfulness for us means to fix our eyes again on the true king and to put away from our hearts all the counterfeits and pretenders. The Sunday next before Advent calls us to see that we are always just before Advent because our Lord is always faithful and desirous to come to us when we gather as a people of prayer. He has come to his ancient chosen people as their Messiah, through whom we have been engrafted into life. As surely as he delivered his people from Egypt, so in time he delivered them from exile. He comes now to us in the sacrament of the kingdom to sustain us, to be our righteousness. As surely as he came in his first advent, so he shall come again at his second. To receive him is to be brought back to that place in the wilderness, and to receive him now is to be brought to that place in the kingdom at the supper of the Lamb, at the end of all things. To receive the bread of Christ is to become that bread ourselves, broken and given with our Lord for the life of the world. As we offer ourselves this morning souls and bodies, we become 
the offering that he blesses for the benefit of his people until he comes again and takes us again to himself. And nothing of the offering that we make to him this morning is ever wasted. No joy and no sorrow, no triumph or suffering is ever offered but that our Lord will receive it and raise it up with greater mirth and beauty and gladness than we can possibly know until that day of Advent comes. For as Jesus said, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.